All right, sit down. Woo! Come on. Could you be more spread out? <laughs> Wouldn't want to mistake us for community, you know? <laughs> so. See, I don't have to deal with the mess that I create. It's just kind of like, you know, do my thing and disappear. That's what my wife says anyway. Uh, greetings from Kim and from our six children and three daughter-in-laws and a son-in-law and now seven grandbabies who are six and under. I, l- I love grandbabies. Come on, right? I have a theory. You know, you've heard the regular theory about giving them back, yeah. right? Well, I have a theory that is a little deeper than that. <laughs> doesn't mean it's true. It's just, you know, because there's all kinds of deeper things and some of them stink. So, uh, but my theory is, is that hopefully by the time you're a grandparent, your children beat the snot out of your self-centeredness, <laughs> right? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, with your kids were still interfering with your life. But the grandbabies, the answer is yes. What's the question? Right? So I, I got this last night from, uh, this came in, actually it was this morning. This is because uh, three of my grandbabies, our grandbabies are up in Seattle. And um, Gavin is six. And he's the oldest of the seven grandbabies. And, and Muriel is four. Now Gavin is a very linear thinker. Right? His, uh, his, Mom and dad both graduated in honors different fields from Caltech, right? So they're smart people. My son scored a perfect SAT, a perfect GRE. He's doing a PhD in statistics and probability, right? So, uh, so Gavin is in that line. Now, he's a linear thinker. And Muriel, who is two years younger than him, is a global thinker. And she can wrap him around her little finger. Because she will just introduce something like pink clouds in the middle of his linear thinking, and it'll totally drive him nuts, right? And uh, so, so I got this. This is this shows you the, the difference between Gavin and Mirio. So they they were explaining their pumpkins to a neighbor, right, last night, and Gavin says, "Mine is a vampire," and Muriel says, "Well, mine's a little worried that there's a vampire nearby." <laughs> How cool is that, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so amazing. And they say the best things. Um, L, who is 19 days younger than Gavin, therefore different family, unless you think it was a long labor. But um, L and Gavin um, are 19 days apart. And L is the firstborn uh, child of um, Andrew and Courtney, who's our th- Andrew's our third child. So we had boy, 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 girl, girl, boy, six. Right, our youngest is twenty. Our oldest is thirty-three, and um, L is the princess, you know, and uh, um, she she's one of these little girls that can turn on crocodile tears like on demand, right? And so, and the whole world is either for her or against her at any given moment, and uh, so total princess. So one day she's. Houston, who's you know a four-year-old, his her little brother, 
Houston had been into a bunch of stuff and had um, sort of uh, was interfering with Elle's control of the universe, you know. And, uh, and uh, you know, she's, a age, she's old enough now to be a legalist, and he's not. He's, a, he's still a criminal. And um, so Elle's throwing this fit, right? And so I go over to talk to her about it. And uh, I say, you know, Elle, I'm, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of impressed about the way you're able to put the tears like, on like that. But I'm, I'm so not impressed by the, the wine. <laughs> what do you mean, grumps, you know? So I start talking to her in the same voice that she's using with me, right? And she's trying not to laugh because, you know, it kind of breaks the persona if she doesn't. So, so I'm whining back to her and finally she puts her hand on my leg and she leans in and she goes, but Gramps, if I don't do this, how am I going to get my way? I know. I want to say, you have no idea how much I love you right now. It's like, so we've had a couple of major family changes this summer. We had um, our Nicholas, who's our, he's now just turned 31, but he got married this summer in our backyard. And uh, so he's waited a long time for this and he, he married a nurse, which is good. You know, guys don't have much of a choice but to marry up anyway, but nurses are even better. And uh, yeah. Nurses exist to save us from doctors, is my theory. And uh, I got friends who are doctors. So this is a great story. And we're going to go from... See, I love to tell stories, right? Yeah. Now, I used to, I'm a missionary kid and a preacher's kid. A uh, preacher's kid and then before that a missionary kid. And so we didn't call it um, telling stories when I was growing up. It was called lying. But... <laughs> Right? So religious kids are really good storytellers. <laughs> and we're trained. Right? We're in the ministry. So, uh, no, let's not go there. So, uh, uh, so this summer, we had uh, Nicholas get married in our backyard. And the day after he got married, Andrew came back from Uganda with Maisie, who's our seventh grandchild. She is adopted from Uganda. And, uh, but it took him eight weeks to get out and he was supposed to be in the wedding party. And, um, and so he didn't, he, he's supposed to be only over there for three weeks and Courtney went over there with him. So we had the, the, the three grandbabies for three weeks and, uh, which was awesome. Um, they wear you out. There's a reason you have children when you're younger. I look at these guys who are like 60 and decide to have a child. I'm going, are you an idiot or what? I mean, how can you do that? Because you're like 80 years old going to their high school basketball game. It's going, come on. What's with that? You know, I understand, you know, in scripture, most of the guys were like 60 or 80 when they married, you know, somebody 14, but they were trying to match maturity. They just don't do that anymore. (laughs) Hey, yeah, give me away secrets. Hey. I'm old enough not to care anymore. <laughs> so, so um, my uh, the three the three kids were over playing in the backyard, and um, and this is a, about ten days before the wedding. And Andrew is still over in Uganda. Uh, Courtney has come back. She came back after three weeks, and Andrew is trying to get her uh, Maisie through the red tape. Maisie is 22 months old now, and she's been with us now two months. 
So this is really recent. And, um, and so the three, uh, Houston, now Houston is four and Houston is our gadget guy, right? Anything with a button, he will push it. Even if it blows up the whole world. In fact, he will prefer that it blows up the whole world. And, uh, so he is always finding buttons and pushing stuff, pushing everybody's buttons, right? So especially L's and, um, so Houston is out, you know, investigating stuff in our backyard and he finds a pipe. Now, we've lived there three years and I never knew what this pipe was for. In fact, I didn't know you could take the cap off of this pipe and it sticks out of the ground about yay high, right? And it's about this round and we have a septic system. I didn't know. So... They're out there, and, and Houston finds out he can take the cap off this thing. And not only that, he finds out that this is such a great place to put rocks, like big rocks. So he has been collecting rocks, and then he gets his younger sister, Ivy, and uh, his older sister, Elle, to help. And by the time I catch them, they've got this sucker... And it goes down into the ground like six feet, right? So they got it right within about four inches of the very top of the pipe, full of rocks, right? So I, I come over, and I don't know what the pipe's for anyway, so it doesn't really matter. So, you know, Courtney is there, and so she and I reach as far down as we can to fish as many rocks out as we can. And then I put the cap back on, no big deal. I don't know that it's a clean-out valve for the septic system, right? I don't know stuff like that. And, um, and that's why I have a son who's a mechanical engineer, but he was in Uganda. <laughs> so, so no problem. This is like 10 days before the wedding. So the next day, Kim took a two-car garage that we have, and she turned it into a guest house, right? So she had it all fixed up and remodeled and all this, and they put in a bathroom and all this stuff. And, and uh, the next day, that shower and that bathroom are all backed up and overflowing, which I don't make the connection for, right? So I go out there, and, and Katie, who lives with us, pick up strays, right? I mean, our whole family has been like that. We always end up with, who are you? you living with us, right? You know? And so Katie is one of those girls that, that has become part of our family. And so she tells me on her way to work, she says, Hey, Paul, uh, there's a really odd smell in the, in the guest house, right? And uh, I, th- I think the, the shower is backed up. Okay, so I go in there, and sure enough, so, you know, I may not know a lot of mechanical stuff, but I know what a shop vac is. So I decided I'm going to use a shop vac to clean out the water that's overflowed because there's a lip on the shower about this deep and it was over that. So it's backed up pretty good. And I have one of those big shop vacs, a manly shop vac, right? So I take this manly shop vac and I go and I fill it up seven times with water out of that. You know, you stick the hose down there and you're sucking up all this stuff and it goes in the shop vac and then you go, we had a big drain system outside and uh, in the driveway. So seven of these things, and I fix it, right? (laughs) I mean, the water's gone, and I spend the afternoon cleaning it and disinfecting it and doing the whole thing, and no big deal. And uh, the next day, 
The three babies are coming over. Kim's helping our daughter, Lexi, who was married a year ago, helping her move to another little apartment. And I have the, I have the job with the three, six, four, and two and a half. And uh, they're the ones that, you know, Houston is the four-year-old of those three. So they're over, and my job is to, you know, play with them and spend the day with them and then take them over to their house and feed them supper and get them ready for bed. Courtney is working. She works two days a week, so she was working that day, and it's a Monday. And this is, I guess it's a little more than 10 days because this is Monday, and the wedding is a week from Saturday. Okay? So... They're over, and about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, this whole thing backs up again. So I called the guy that built it, right? And I said, hey, I need some advice here. It's backing up, and I don't know what to do. Well, you've got to find the clean-out valve, okay? Um, so uh, so I, we talk about it. He says, you know, I don't really know how it's situated. I know that we, we've got a back patio and stuff, and... And we know that line has to run all the way over because the septic system is underneath the play structure that the kids play on. So, you know, which is about 150 feet. And uh, so I know that it runs under there somewhere. I still no ding, ding, ding yet, you know. And so I'm just sitting there talking. And so he says, you know, you need to call Roto-Rooter. I said, okay. So I call, I look up in, on my Google, right, to find the local Roto-Rooter. And I call them up, and I, I use my phone, and I've got it on my phone, and I call them up in Roto-Rooter, and they ask me what the deal is, and I tell them what the problem is, and they said, well, you know what? We have somebody in your area this afternoon. We'll just have them drop by. Really? When does that ever happen, right? So, uh, so I said, great. So they were supposed to be there like at 2 o'clock. Well, at about 3.30, I call them back. And they go, who are you? Now, I use the same number. It's on my phone, right? And they answer it, Roto-Rooter. And, I'm, and I, they said, we're trying to, where do you live? So I tell them again. I gave them all that information, right? They said, who are you? So, well, I'm the guy that called this morning, and you had somebody in the area, and you were, okay, can you hold for a minute, right? So I wait, and then they come back on, and they said, Sir, we have no record of your call in our system. None. Zero. Are you sure this is the right number? It's the only one I got. Right? And I'm going, yeah, 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 it's the one I called. And they're very apologetic and very nice. And they said, you know what? We'll, we'll try to have somebody out there within the next couple hours. I said, well, maybe we could do this in the morning because whoever you're going to get out here this afternoon, they're obviously it's going to be later and I need to... I got some things I got to do, like the kids. Got to take them over to their house and feed them. No problem. We'll have somebody there first thing in the morning. Okay. So I go take care of the kids, and in the morning I, sh I get the knock on the door, and it's a young man. He's probably 28 to 30, somewhere in there, and he's got the little Roto-Rooter little badge on, and he says, I've come to help you with your problem. Great. So I take him out there, and we take a look and survey the situation, and... Uh, he decides he's going to have to run this pretty amazing thing that has a camera on the end of it that you can push it down into the pipe and then it'll, you know, you can see all the crap it's going through and all that, you know. <laughs> so, so we're running this thing, right? And it's and about 120 feet into this. And he is, 
he's in this small room because we found this other um, near where the the uh, shower is. We found another intake valve or a clean-out valve. And so he was running this thing down there. It's like 100 degrees out. It's a very hot day in Oregon. And uh, so he's just reefing on this thing, and he's just drenched in sweat. And it takes him about an hour and a half to get this thing. And he says, we've run into a bunch of rocks. <laughs> Oh, you know what? I know, I might know what that is. So I go show him the other valve, you know, the other pipe, and he says, "Yeah, that's probably it." So now we got to find out a way to get the, all those rocks out of there. And 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 so you know, those shop vacs are kind of amazing. You stick that thing and suck those rocks right up into the shop vac. And uh, and 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 he is trying to get this his thing through the through the whole pipe system. Well, it's now about eleven thirty. And he says, Paul, is that all right? Because we've been talking all morning because I've been, you know, I help do whatever I can. And, and he said, I'm going to go to lunch. Now, we had been talking about something and something triggered something. And I said to him, do you read at all much? And he said, yeah. In fact, I've kind of been looking for a book. I said, have you ever heard of a book called The Shack? He said, no. I said, well, I got an extra copy. <laughs> he said, I'll take it with me. I'm just going to go get some fast food or something and sit in, uh, you know, at a little restaurant or something down Oregon City, which is just, you know, three miles away. So I give him a copy of the book, and he takes it with him. So he comes back about 1 o'clock. He looks at me. He goes, um, you wrote this book, didn't you? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I started reading it, and I'm kind of hooked. So I called my mom. She's read it. And uh, my sister has read it, and my sister-in-law has read it, right? And they can't believe I'm here, so can I have a picture with you? Right? I said, sure. So, so we do, do that. Now, about, about an hour into the afternoon, he, he blows through that blockage, right? He gets the... And he, and he pushes... You, they put a little thing on the end of that camera thing and you can actually push everything down into the septic system. Well, in that process, he finds a place that where the, where the pipes sink and it's going to blow up at some point, right? I mean, and he said, this is just an issue. You need to deal with this in the near future. Now, this is all, what, a week and a half before the wedding. And because uh, that's kind of why I've got him there. And I explained this all that. And he said, you're going to have to take care of that issue because it at some point is going to blow up and it's going to create, you know, this big hole in your, in your backyard. And I go, well, who do I get to do that? He said, well, I can do that. I said, you'll do that? He said, sure. So he's out in the sun. Kim's bringing him an umbrella so he can be in the shade, you know, and, and uh, Matthew, who's our 20-year-old, is bringing him coconut water and stuff so he doesn't die, you know. <laughs> and, I mean, he's literally soaked in perspiration. And 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 he because he's got a machine that says it's 18 inches right below here. And he then he dug it up. And sure enough, you could see where it had sunk. And so I, I was using the wheelbarrow and getting rocks. Thank you, Houston. Uh, <laughs> from our driveway and bringing them back because he's putting them underneath the, the piping to lift it up, right? To, and, and resetting the, all the connectors and all that. So we, sp- we spend a good part of that day together. And it, at about 5 o'clock, he's starting to put the sod back on top of that hole. And he looks at me and he says, um, 
I got to tell you that you're probably going to be surprised when you see the invoice. And I'm thinking, "Mm -mm. I I know what you guys charge per hour, right? It's not cheap, right? So I'm thinking, uh, no, no, no. He says, no, 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 no. You probably don't understand. It's going to be a, it's going to be a lot less than you think. I said, Cody, um, what do you mean? He said, Paul, you have no idea what this day has meant for me. He said, three weeks ago, um, you know, I was, I've been living with my high school sweetheart, and three weeks ago she decided that there was somebody else that was more important, and she walked out on me and our three-year-old son. And we've been living together six years, he says, and, and, uh, and it devastated me, and I've been just lost. And the other night I did something for the first time in my life um, that I can remember. I asked my mom if she would pray with me. And so my mom and I sat and I just said, God, you got to show up. He says, you have no idea what this day has meant for me. And I'm going, well, do you, you do know that your whole company had to lose all my records for you to be the guy that showed up here, right? <laughs> right? You know, we're involved in something that is way bigger And if you get a set of expectations on what you think is supposed to happen, you will end up with a set of disappointments without ever understanding any of the purposes that are built into it. It's not going to stop God. He's going to still accomplish his purposes, including dealing with your crap. But um, I'm serious, right? So Cody and I had become friends, you know. And, And you think about that, you know, the kindness that was involved in that. And any more... When things go sideways, as they say, I'm, I start to look and ask the questions. What's going on here? What's really happening here? And it happens over and over and over that the kindness and the goodness of God is woven inside of these storylines. And, um, and, and that's just, you know, that's two months ago in our backyard. And so Courtney comes over and I explained this to Courtney. I said, let me tell you how your kids participated in the purposes of God. Right? Now, now I said, just so you know, if they want to do it again like this, I had Cody put an, you can't take the cap off this. They're going to have to find some other way to participate in the purposes of God. Right? Because Cody put a cap on there. You have to use a wrench to get that thing off. Right? So they're going to have to find a different way. But, but again, they did. Right? And, uh, and, and part of this is you, you learn that there's humor that's built inside all of this. Because, you know, where did humor come from? It originated with God. In the shack, when Mackenzie goes back there and it's transformed, the first sound he hears on his way back up to the porch is the sound of laughter coming from inside. Right? Because this is a God who's about relationship. Right? This is a God who's always been in relationship. And... Um, you know those people that are mad about the book? You know, you may not know them, but <laughs> you need to know something. Those are my people. I tell you, evangelical, fundamental, all right, Protestant, my people, right? So you be careful how you're talking about them. Now, most of them haven't read it, but you know, it's true, it's true. I had my first protesters in Orlando, right? So I landed Orlando. I'm speaking to a couple thousand people. And I get there, and it's like 100 degrees out. It's hot in Orlando, and it's 100 degrees. It's like, you know, 100% humidity. 
And um, so I get there, and they've got, I mean, there's a picket line, and they've got bullhorns, and they're yelling and screaming and stuff. And I'm going, what's, what are they here for? (laughs) You. What? Really? And I'm thinking, a couple years before that, you know, I've been shipping out soldering tips and cleaning toilets, and I have protesters? Like, how cool is that? (laughs) Right? Who gets protesters? So, so... And they're working up a sweat, and they're hot. So I took them bottles of water, right? I'm serious. I got a whole case of water, and I took it out there, and I'm handing them bottles of water. And one of the guys says, so do you work here? (laughs) No. Then he says, why are you doing this? Why are you, you know, water and all this? I said, I'm the guy that wrote the book you're mad about. (laughs) What? So we all gather around for like 15 minutes and talk about it, right? Come to find out not one of the protesters had read it. My people, we're brilliant. We can be right about stuff that we know nothing about. Right? At least you Pentecostals, you I mean you talk to the Holy Spirit. I mean, we, that scared the crap out of us growing up. And we were never going to go to one of your camps. Right? It was bait and switch, right? So, so I love my people and, and, uh, but you know, I come from a tradition where it's easier to be right than to love. So, you know, I'm serious, right? Right. So I got tons of stories I can tell you about all kinds of things, but I want to ask, I want you to ask your questions. I want to do, I do Q and R cause I'm a Canadian and we don't have all the answers. So I do questions and responses. And I can repeat them too, because I. Yeah, I'll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you want to do. Yeah. So if you've got a question, and then it can be about anything, crossroads or shack or grandbabies. Okay, I just discovered it Halloween night because I was avoiding the trick or treaters. Um, when was when did your your friend's book Baxter's book come out? The shack revisited. Okay, so my friend Baxter Kruger, he's a for real theologian. And he lives in Mississippi. And Baxter is, um, he came out of the, uh, he grew up, he was raised and and cultured inside the uh, Presbyterian Church of America. And and had a massive paradigm shift when he was in university. He was a senior at uh, Old Miss and found out there was a library. And um, (laughs) he didn't know. So he was at the library and he found a little book by Athanasius. I don't know if you know who Athanasius was, but he's a guy in 300 AD who basically single-handedly saved the early church. He was a little black man from North Africa. And he, he wrote a book when he was like 21 years old called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. Brilliant. And... Um, when Back, Baxter, who knows how he found it, but it was in old Mrs. Library, and he took this, and he's a southern boy. He's a, you know, Baxter Kruger, you know. So, um, but this book so rattled him. It's a little book by Athanasius that he, it changed the course of his life. And he ended up trying to figure out who else is talking about the relationship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he found that there was a couple professors in Aberdeen, Scotland, that were teaching about this. So Baxter moved to Aberdeen, 
with his wife, and uh, and he got his PhD in Aberdeen, and um, uh, with the Torrance brothers, who are two of the most brilliant theologians of the 20th century. So Baxter, and it's it's such a great story. Um, okay, so I've got to give you some frame of reference for this thing because. I don't know if any of you remember, but um, there used to be uh, an organization called the Worldwide Church of God with uh, Garner Ted Armstrong and before that Herbert W. Armstrong. And they used to have a a, um, a radio show every Sunday morning, right? Um, And um, about 30 years ago, um, the new leadership of the Worldwide Church of God gathered their young gun theologians together all these young guys, and they said to them, we have a mission for you. Right? This is Joe Tkach and, and some of the other leaders of the Worldwide Church of God. And here was the mission they gave to their young theologians. We want you to go to evangelical seminaries like Fuller Seminary, like Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Regent, all this, and we want you over the next five years to to get an education, but here's the question that we want you to come back and report to us about. Why are the people who are calling us a cult wrong? That was their mission, was to go find out why the people that were calling the Worldwide Church of God a cult and why they were wrong. Well, there was either three or five-year mission, but anyway, they come back from it, these young guns, and report back to their leadership. And their report is, we're a cult. <laughs> and the leadership listened to them and disbanded the worldwide church of God. You will, I mean, you never hear about this kind of stuff, right? But they literally agree, said, okay, we're a cult. What do we do? Well, they splintered into all kinds of little pieces, right? And the main one, the main group of the churches internationally that were the Worldwide Church of God are now called Grace Communion International. And their old Plain Truth magazine that they used to give out at the corners, you know, is one of the most brilliant magazines you will ever read. And when they looked around for their new theology or what to build their, their whole understanding on, they found Baxter. Baxter had written a couple books like uh, Jesus and the Undoing of Adam and uh, The Great Dance and Across All Worlds. And Baxter was toiling away in Mississippi about ready to, to quit. Uh, he's just been a voice crying in the wilderness about the relationship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And um, found out that there's this whole Grace Communion International that are building their understanding of the character of God around his stuff. Coupled with Aussies, the Australians were doing the same thing. Now, Baxter has now been to Australia 17 times in the last 15 years. And again, his stuff has just had this ripple effect. Well, I write the shack. I write the shack on the train to one of my three jobs because I'm trying to get it done for Christmas as a gift to our kids. I was trying to do like the Bible says and submit to my wife. And... It says that. It does. It says submit one to another, and she is one of the other ones. Let me tell you. <laughs> right? So, 
I've always been a writer, and I like to write, and, and Kim loves what I did, but, and my friends did. And so she had said, someday as a gift to our kids, would you just put in one place how you think, because you think outside the box. That's what all I was trying to do. I made 15 copies at Office Depot, um, little spiral-bound thing with a plastic cover on it. Those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted the shack to do. That's really important. You understand that, right? And um, so I made 15 copies, went back to work because I never published anything. I wasn't trying to publish anything. It never even crossed my mind to publish the shack. 15 copies, six to the kids. Uh, Kim got a copy, two cousins in Canada, and I gave the rest to my friends and I went back to work. Your kids, you know, you give them a book for Christmas and it's kind of like, oh, thanks, Dad. <laughs> like, we'll get right on that, you know. So it, it took them a while, but, but my friends, man, they start giving it to their friends and their friends gave it to their friends and uh, started this whole thing going. Well, it ends up in the hands of um, a pastor of Grace Communion International named Tim Brazell in Maryland. And he sends me an email at this point because, you know, the book actually got printed in May of 07, landed in the garage down here in Los Angeles, uh, two guys in L.A., created a publishing company because nobody wanted to publish the shack and they, they believed in it. And so they created a publishing company and then um, one of them volunteered to ship books out of his house at night because he was putting in people's sprinkler systems during the day. And I'm working three jobs up in Portland, so I'm whatever, you know. And they wanted to eventually make it into a movie. That was the whole vision, which was great. I had no expectations for it to begin with. I'm not about to get some, right? So it's all good. And um, even when the 26 publishers turned it down, didn't bother me a bit um, because I'm, this is God's adventure that I got to participate in. And I'm thrilled about that. So it eventually becomes this massive, unbelievable phenomenon, right? Nobody, had, nobody saw it coming. Nobody. And, uh, oh, so, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but they, could, they got the inside track on this kind of stuff anyway. And... Uh, <laughs> So, but I didn't, my kids sure didn't, and my family didn't, my friends didn't, and, and nobody in the industry did. So uh, nobody saw that this book was going to become what it did. It, it became this book that gave people a way to talk about God in a way that wasn't religious, but relational, right? So Tim Brazell of the Worldwide Church of God, he had run into it, and he sends me an email and he says, have you talked to a guy named Baxter Kruger? Um, he's teaching the theology that's embedded inside your story. And I wrote him back and I said, no, I, I've never heard of him. He said, well, here's his phone number. So as is, as is my habit, I call him, right? Now, here's what I didn't know. Either the day or two days before I called Baxter, uh, about the week prior, he'd gotten a phone call from Wendy Marchant, a woman from Sault Ste. Marie, Canada. And Wendy had called Baxter and said, Hey, Baxter, I am not getting off the phone until you promise me you'll read a book. And he, and he had said to Wendy, Wendy, you know, people ask me to read books all the time, and then I have to tell them why I don't like it, and it's really awkward. And, and um, she said, No, I'm not, I'm not getting off the phone. He said, Well, because it's you and because of his relationship, he said... I'll put it at the top of my reading pile at the deer stand. 
right? Because Baxter has a Cadillac deer stand. It's called the Cadillac deer stand. It's got two banker's chairs. It's carpeted. It's got a tin roof, steps going up into it. And that's where he goes and writes his books. And he reads his theology, right? And over the course of 15 15 years, two deer have been dumb enough to run in front of his gun. (laughs) Right? And uh, so Baxter takes... I mean, he gets the ISBN number and orders it, and he takes it with him to the Cadillac deer stand. And he starts into chapter one, and he's by himself, and he gets to where Missy's situation is, and Baxter becomes emotionally involved. Now, if you haven't read it, you don't know this, but the first five chapters are not graphic, but they're incredibly wrenching, right? People have asked me a lot, how could you write this scenario for your own children. Uh, and I say, you know, well, part of it is I, I wanted to wrap my own history inside a story. And, and part of it is I don't want them growing up with the God I did. Because mine is white, distant, Gandalf with a bad attitude. <laughs> right? And, and I said, you know, as I thought about different scenarios... To me, the greatest loss a human being can experience is the loss between a parent and a child. There is no question in my mind. It is the greatest loss. And it asks the best questions. Like, where is God? Right? And so it created the scenario. Well, Baxter gets totally wrapped up in this scenario. And at one point, in the midst of this, tears running down his face, he stands up by himself in the deer stand... And he holds this book up and he says, I don't know who you are, William T. Young, because that's what he thought Wendy had said, William T. Young. So I don't know who you are, but if your answer to this gut-wrenching situation is the same old, same old, distant, unapproachable, unreachable, unemotional, God at best watching from the infinite distance of a disapproving heart, I will personally take this copy 200 yards down the road, lean it against a tree, and personally blow it out of the cosmos. (laughs) And then he says, and then Papa came through the door. And he said, who is this guy? Right? Because everybody in the community of conversation theologically, they all know each other. I didn't come from that world. Right? And so he's like, Oh my gosh, the whole gospel is right here, right? So that night he finishes reading the book with a flashlight in his mouth in his driveway, right? (laughs) And I think it was the next day. It was either, that was either a Friday night or a Saturday night. And Sunday he's watching Eli Manning, right? The New York Giants, because Eli is an old Miss graduate and he's now, you know, the boy. So um, not so much this year, but, but uh, struggling a bit, but um, Anyway, he's watching Old Miss with his son, um, Jebby, and, uh, and he gets a call. He says to Jebby, hey, Jebby, you know what a 503 area code is? Jebby says, I don't know. I've never heard of a 503 area code. He goes, huh. And normally, he would just let it go to voicemail, especially when he's watching football. But he says, for some reason, I picked it up. And so he picks it up. He says, hello? I said, Baxter? He said, yeah, who's this? I said, this is Paul Young. Baxter's going, 
how's your mom? <laughs> right? Because he's a southern boy, right? So it's all, it's, and he's thinking, Paul Young, who's Paul Young? Right? Now this is, but you have to, have a funny thing. The first whole mass of a bunch of editions say William P. Young, right? Which was a joke. Actually, there were two jokes on the original manuscript for my kids. One was, it said, the shack by Mackenzie Allen Phillips with William P. Young, which was okay until friends of friends of friends started giving the book away to each other, and they wanted to fly to Portland to have lunch with Mackenzie, which was a problem, right? So we had to take him off the authorship. That was one issue. And then, but the other thing is, nobody in my world knows me as William. Nobody. Not, not until now, right? Not until this book. I am one of four generations of Williams, none of who go by William. <laughs> we all go by our middle names. So I'm William Paul. So Paul. My son is William Chad. My dad is William Henry. Henry and Chad. And then my grandson's William Gavin. Gavin, right? And so it was a joke, William P. Young, which was awesome because when the book eventually got printed, I would have people call me up and they'd go, Hey, Paul, have you read this book by this William Young? He thinks like you, you know? So, so Baxter goes, I, I'm sorry, I don't know a, William, uh, a Paul Young. I go, well, you might know me as, as William Paul Young. He goes, no. Wait. Are you like the William Paul Young? I'm going, I don't know about the the part, but I, <laughs> I'm William Paul Young. He says, dude, did you write like the best book that's been written in the last 500 years of theology? <laughs> I go, I have no idea. I don't, I don't, he, dude, did you write the shack? Yeah. Why are you calling me? Right? <laughs> so I tell him about Tim Brazell, who Baxter knows really well right? Who had sent me the email. And so we talked like for two hours. Well, as a result of that initial conversation, Baxter and I, oh, it's totally okay. And I totally understand. (laughs) You're just brave enough to say it. So, (laughs) so Baxter and I have, we've probably spoken, I don't know, 15 or 20 times. I was with him last week. He and I uh, did this thing for a reunion of, of, there were 50-plus Special Forces guys. Um, and we have a mutual friend, Paul Lavelle in Colorado Springs, who, who has had over 500 of these guys go through a five-day intensive trying to reconnect them to their humanity. Right? It's unbelievable what, they, what these guys do. On his, and Paul Lavelle was Master Chief of the U.S. Air Force, which is the highest enlisted position in the U.S. Air Force. And on his team is the ex-commander for Delta Force and the ex-commander for Navy uh, SEAL Team 6. So these are, these are guys, right? But their lives are destroyed. They have the highest suicide rate in the military and the highest divorce rate, which is already 75% in the military. And um, so Baxter and I were there last week. And, and so Baxter and I have become very good friends. He and I and John McMurray, who is another theologian and an artist, um, are doing um, open table conferences uh, we have our third one coming up, sadly, in Maui, which I've never been to, but I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, I know, I know you feel for me, whatever. So, but, uh, so Baxter and I, one day, we're up in Toronto. We didn't know that the other one was going to be there. We ended up in this hotel room um, in, the, in the lobby, 
no, hotel room, sorry. I'm not a Baptist. And um, so, it's, it's way, no, it's my people, come on. So, um, so Baxter and I, were. he shows me this piece of paper, and on it it's written kind of the whole theological framework, and it's sideways and upside down, and I'm going, man, you should write a book about this. So that's where the Shack Revisited came from. And so the Shack Revisited came out last. Actually, it came out in Brazil before it came out in English. Because the Brazilians are kind of nuts about Acabana, the Shack, right? It's the number two book in the history of Brazil, right? And the, the number one book is a little book by a very tall Dominican priest, and it's called Agape. And, but the number two book in the history of Brazil and the number one book by a non-Brazilian is the Shack. And, um, and it's just gone massively all through Brazil. And um, you know who my number one distributor in Brazil is? You would never guess. Well, you might give it enough time. But, um, you know, because it's a, it's a finite set, right? So, um, but um, there is no, like, Brazil is the same size as the continental United States, Right? People don't know that. They think it's just this little tiny country down in South America. It is the same size. The only reason the U.S. is bigger than Brazil is because of uh, Alaska, right? Hawaii doesn't even count. So, um, but it's got the three time zones. The whole thing is massive country. And, um, and, but there's no real distribution system on the ground uh, for publishing and books and all. It's in the big cities. Um, so my number one distributor in Brazil is uh, senior moment. Um, not Mary Kay, but the other one. Avon. 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 Avon has, has, has sold more than a million copies of the shack on the ground in Brazil. Right? They sell cosmetics and books. I love it. On my, on my sheet, it says it has a line, a line item for Avon. It's the coolest thing ever, right? So they're in, because they have a distribution system, right? They're in these little barrios and little towns and everything. It's awesome. So, um, so the Brazilians are kind of all over this. And when we showed them the shack revisited, they, I mean, it's like they read it on a Friday and, and Baxter had a contract on like Monday and it wasn't even in the U.S. It wasn't in English, whatever. So it came out in Brazil first. And then, um, and then it came out here about a year and a half ago, two years ago, right in that, in that realm. But in Brazil, it's probably done close to a half a million copies as a book of theology. It's stunning. Well, and the book is great. Baxter's done a phenomenal job. Some of the most beautiful things you will ever read about the Holy Spirit are in The Shack Revisited. And... Um, and he really has been going after the paradigm of the Western family theological conversation and has done a massively beautiful job. So I'm, I'm thrilled with it. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Talk to Mike. <laughs> the unique and wonderful and yet more understandable treatment of uh, Sarayu and Jesus as spirit and God-man. Um, make me ask the question about 
God the Father in your book. Yeah. And that is, what is it about your past? Or Why your, a large black African-American woman? Or your understanding of our nature as humans that creates um, Papa. Okay. That's a great question. Um, I'll, t- I'll kind of tell you a little bit about the, the sort of the formation of working with the Trinity. Um, it's absolutely central to what I do, that there is a relationship at the heart of God, right? Because if God is like Plato says, is this solitary, indivisible unity, you don't have a basis for either love or relationship. And, and frankly, this is why in Islam, God is not love. God is merciful and compassionate, but because they so believe in the indivisible unity of God, the one God, that there is no basis. Because then for Allah to be loving, to be loved, to be loved by nature, it would require an other. Because you cannot have love independent of an other, right? And so they're strictly speaking correct, given their premises. If God requires an other in order to be by nature loving, the creation, which it would be the other in this sense, is something God needs to be loving, which is a problem, right? Whatever God needs is greater than God. And that's why in Islam they can't go there, right? But if you got like in Judaism, and I'll, I'll get to this in a second, but if you got it like in our tradition where there is person within God, persons within God, then you've already got relationship and love inherently inside the very character of God. You have another, two others, right? And so this is why the early church, and it took them, you know, all the way up through Athanasius and Irenaeus and these guys to figure out how do we even talk about this? You know, when Jesus stands up and he says, one of the most radical things that actually, in part, got him killed. And that was, he spun off of the Shema, which is the number one statement in, in Judaism. And that is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Right? And, and Jesus didn't contradict that. He expanded it. And what he said was, Hear, O Israel, basically. The Father and I are one. Do you remember that they killed him because he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal to him, right? So the issue of the fatherhood of God is right at the center of what happens because when Jesus showed up, nobody knew the Father. He said that. You, you, You all know the verse probably, come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And my yoke is easy, my burden is light, right? The verse before that is, no one knows the Father, come to me. Which totally changes the context of what he's saying. And he's saying Adam didn't know the Father, Abraham didn't know the Father, Hannah didn't know the Father, Isaiah didn't know the Father, nobody knows the Father. The Father's, do you know that Jesus in the recorded history of, of Jewish thought and literature is the first person in recorded Jewish history to refer to God as not just Father, but my Father and in my Abba. First one. And he did it when he's 12 years old. 
He, he was not taught that from anywhere in his tradition or history. The use of father in the Old Testament happens 15 times. It's never personal. It's never in a prayer. It's normally connected with the father of Israel or whatever. And it's 176 times, I think, in the Gospels. And Paul starts every one of his epistles with the God and Father, right? Everything's changed. So this issue of the Father is really, really significant. So my journey into the Trinity, I write out of questions. That's what I do. I explore questions. I'm not trying to... I don't have an agenda, like I'm not trying to evangelize and stuff like that. I'm, it's, I got too much damage in my religious history to do that kind of stuff. And uh, so... I like to explore a question, different questions in the shack than in Crossroads. Um, but I like, I like questions. Questions challenge paradigms, right? And so I got a whole bunch of those questions, uh, ones that I want, wasn't allowed to ask growing up in the church. And one of them is, if men are so much more screwed up than women, how come they're in charge? <laughs> I'm serious. I, I would think that's a good question, right? Because it's, and it's easy to prove the basis for it, right? I mean, you, you look around. Most of the damage in the world is caused by men. I mean, how many brothels exist for women? Do you know? They don't. And you start looking at prison systems. You start looking at crimes. You start looking at all the statistics. And it's us guys who are right smack in the middle of the damage. So part of my question is, if we have hierarchical structures and they're legit, it's got to exist inside the relationship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That was one of 25 years of work for me on trying to deal with this whole gender inequality thing because, frankly, my damage has come from men for the most part. Women have shown up at different parts of my life and saved me, right? And so I'm trying to reconcile that. And at the same time, we have all these you know, religious hierarchies and stuff. And most people don't realize this, um, but every Christian tradition, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, all three of them have agreed about, I mean, they've agreed about a few things together, but not a lot. But one of the things they've agreed upon, there's this little phrase in theology that says, it's called, uh, it's couched in this language, the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father, hierarchy. All three traditions have said that that idea is heresy, that there is no hierarchy within the relationship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? And so my journey into expanding my understanding of the relationship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit came through gender issues, a lot of it, right? So I am trying to couch, because Kim has asked me to do this whatever, Right? And by the way, when the book finally got printed, she said to me, she said, you know, Paul, when I asked you to do this, I was thinking like four to six pages. <laughs> right? Because I've never written a book before. I've written poetry and songs and short stories and stuff and given it to my friends and family. But So um, I'm trying to find a way. I want my kids to understand the character and nature of God in terms of the God who actually showed up in my life. Okay. Now, there's, there's three parts to it, of course. And Jesus, that was an easy one, right? It's Jesus. Although I have gotten, 
um, I think, five emails over the course of the last few years where people have written me and said, how dare you make Jesus a Middle Easterner? <laughs> right? My people. Right? I'm going, are you serious? And they're serious. So funny. The Holy Spirit, I grew up in Asia, and the Holy Spirit was pretty easy for me. I had the persona. I had the personas for all three of them right off the bat. It took a while to get the name for the Holy Spirit. But the personas were there from day one, including God the Father being a large black African-American woman. And I'll tell you about that in a minute, which involves a different story, but uh, one that I'd love to tell you if you got the time. What time is it anyway? Oh, yeah, we're good. We're good. So, so... Um, I was working three jobs. I, was working, I worked three jobs for about four years, a little over four years, three jobs. And they were mostly minimum wage. I was working, um, I did shipping and receiving for a friend. Uh, it was m one of my main jobs. I did web conferencing on the side. And I also did hotel night clerk and I did food processing. I did janitorial clean toilets and stuff like that. In fact, I was doing that when I wrote it because I had 40 minutes each way on the train to one of my jobs. Um, and at the time, when I w there came a day, I was working for a web conferencing company downtown Portland, and I got 40 minutes each way on the train, right? And I was going, okay, so um, I need a name for the Holy Spirit, because I got Papa's Easy, right? And that came from, frankly, it came from the Hispanic community. Um, I tried to do the Greek thing, you know, the Abba. And I just couldn't wrap my heart around it. And uh, it just was not, you know, and I've moved a long way. So it was, you know, God, um, you know, because, you know, and that was, you always referred to God, you know, God the Father, God. And then to go from that to um, uh, my God, right, and, and relational, there has been this huge movement. Well, the Hispanic one of the things I loved about the language is that the word papi, papi. And I always had this sense of excitement and the sense of anticipation inside the word. And so for me to tie that into papa was pretty, pretty easy for me. But I wanted that personalized name and I wanted it to be in conflict with the, the, the metaphor, the gender, right? So I've got a large black African-American woman named papa. And uh, as God the Father, right? So, um, and I'll tell you that story in a second, but let me give you the name for the Holy Spirit first, where that came from. Because this actually, this community of faith, um, some of the movement that you're in coming up is, um, is connected to this word uh, in an indirect sort of way, but it's one of those things where you just kind of like, oh, that's actually very good. Um, so I'm on the train and I remember distinctly this one day I'm thinking, I need a name for the Holy Spirit. Because I didn't want Jesus, Papa, and the Holy Spirit. And I for sure didn't want the Holy Ghost. You know, or as my Pentecostal friend, the Holy Ghost, right? So, didn't want the Holy Ghost. And uh, I never had understood why it was, there was a ghost in the middle of the machine anyway. And, um, I mean, it's just kind of weird, right? Um, and as a result of that kind of language, a lot of people didn't understand that the Holy Spirit was a person. It was more of a mystical force or a power or something, right? And um, so 
I said, I'm, I need a name. I worked for that company for two and a half years, uh, downtown Portland, and only one day, only one day did I end up on Skype with a client, right? Skype, internet, telephone thing. And that day that I'm looking for a name for the Holy Spirit, I end up on Skype. They give me a Skype call uh, with a gal named Gitika Prabhu from India. She's looking for a web conferencing solution. I'm looking for a name for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? So I, I took care of her issue in about two minutes. And then I said, Gitika, I, I need your help on something I'm working on for my kids. Could you give me a list of words in Hindi, in your language, for the wind? Right? Because the wind is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. In fact, the wind and spirit are synonymous in Hebrew. And in fact, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, you're introduced for the first time to Ruach. It's feminine. And the verbs are feminine. It was guys who translated it. I'm serious. Overall, the entire Old Testament is dominated by spirit and it's feminine. And the verbs are feminine. Okay? So... To use feminine language wasn't a big stretch for me. And so I'm, I asked Geetika, can you give me a list of words in Hindi uh, for the wind? And she gives me about a dozen. And I'm immediately drawn to one of them. And I said, this is a beautiful word. How do you pronounce it? Sariu. Oh, she said, oh. And there's movement inside the word itself. So you can accent correctly. You can accent either the first or second syllable. Sarayu or Sarayu? And Sarayu. It has a rolled R in it, which I loved because I grew up overseas, right? So if you've heard the audio version of the shack, Mackenzie can't roll an R to save his life. He's a white guy from Oregon. So, you know, so he says Sarayu. <laughs> now, I have been told by a community in Baton Rouge, Grace Community Church in Baton Rouge, that the proper pronunciation is Sariu. <laughs> but in the original language, it's Sarayu or Sariu. And I said, Gitika, I love this. It's got the movement in it. It's got everything that I'm looking for. Sarayu. And um, I said, do you ever name your children after this? And she says, uh, No. But we have a river named after this. Come on, right? A river? I said, so Geetika, here's the important question. What kind of wind is this? Because I don't want a tornado. And I don't want a hurricane. And I don't want to... There's other kinds of wind you don't want it to be. (laughs) Serious. I mean... I see you've eaten curry. So, (laughs) right? Here is Geetika's exact words. She says, Sariu is the common wind that catches you by surprise. I went, what? She says, you know, it's like when you're so hot, you think you're going to die. And then out of nowhere comes this wind that cools you down and changes everything. Okay. 
we got a name for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's where Sariu came from, right? It's the common wind that catches you by surprise. So, so I've got the persona for Papa, and I love this story. Because, see, I believe, it took me 50 years, because I'm a religious kid and had further to go than most people. And, but it, it took me 50 years to get to the place where I believe that God is good all the time. Right? Our journey is not about learning how to please God. Religion is about learning how to please God. And so it really doesn't matter who God is as long as you know what the particular rules are and what you got to do to please Him, which is really about you, not about God at all. Right? Religion is not about God. It's about you and about your ability to perform according to whatever the rules are. And, and I grew up where pleasing God was a, you know, the center of spirituality. You know what the, really, the, the journey really is? Learning how to trust God. That's the journey. And it takes a lot of us a long time because we got too much damage as children where we stop trusting anybody. Now, religion will come in and teach you how to use the language of trust. But let me tell you, when something goes sideways, you will freak out and take control back. Because you can't trust. And you can't trust someone you don't know loves you. And you can't trust someone who's not good all the time. Right? You can have respect for them in a very fearful sort of, you know, distant sort of way. But you can't trust them. And it took me 50 years because of some of my great sadness, which includes sexual abuse as a child inside the tribal culture and at boarding school, missionary boarding school. And it includes a very angry young father. And it took me 50 years to wipe the face of my father completely off the face of God. Right? So all of those things go into this, why? Why I did what I did? Trying to communicate to my kids. I don't want you growing up with the God I did. I don't. Because that God never showed up and never healed anything. As much as I begged him. Well, and, and partly, you remember Mackenzie when he throws his fit, Right? and prays the most honest prayer of his life because he thought that God was going to show up at the shack, right? And he was a no-show. And in his anger, he says, I'm done. I hate you. Right? Honesty, finally. And when God shows up, Mackenzie doesn't even recognize him because his paradigm doesn't allow, right? How about, do you understand this when I say my theological training growing up inside the church, taught me that Jesus indeed had come to save me. But he had come to save me from God the Father. God the Father was the darkness behind the goodness of Jesus that needed to be appeased, right? And so all my language to do with wrath and judgment and all those, which I believe in, by the way, but I believe in it as a father, It was all twisted up so that I had a God who was actually not trustworthy, narcissistic, self, self-centered, self-absorbed, and distant. And I couldn't bridge the gap. In fact, my whole theology was, you know, God spins creation out, sends Jesus because we screwed it all up, and now we have an opportunity to get back into some kind of a semblance of affection and approval if we pick the right, the right door. Because if you don't, hell's to pay, you know. And um, so all my theology was wrapped inside that kind of perspective. And um, so, so 
Papa surprised a lot of people. You've got to remember, I made 15 copies at Office Depot and went back to work. Right? I'm not thinking the whole world's going to read this thing. And, um, and when Papa came through the door, it, un, it unsettled a whole bunch of folks. My, my folks, largely. Um, <laughs> like my folks, like my mom. My folks. Right? And, um, and I love this story because uh, inside it is wrapped this clarity about that there is a God who is good all the time. Right? And a God who by nature submits. Now, there's a big one. Right? And, um, and when Papa came through the door, it was a big surprise to a lot of, a lot of people. Their hearts leaped and then their heads engaged and they were in a conflict. <laughs> right? Because it was inside imagery that they didn't know. It's like when Mackenzie goes up and he raises his fist again, this time to knock at the door, and out comes three people that he doesn't know who they are. Right? There is one who spins him around, and he's drawn into that embrace. And, and then there's another one who is collecting the tears of his great sadness as if they matter. And then there's this other guy who's standing leaning against the door jamb covered in sawdust that later we will find out is the coffin designed for Mackenzie's great sadness. And he doesn't know who they are. And he is, they are inside of his place of deep, deepest loss and they love him. And he hasn't confessed or repented yet. That is the gospel. That forgiveness precedes confession and repentance. That's what Martin Luther and John Calvin stood for. They're the ones who said that because they were pulling from Athanasius and Irenaeus in the early church and not getting stuck inside this judicial model that we are so prone to want because it gives us a greater sense of control. Well, the book becomes this thing, and my mom, as they say in the South when they curse somebody, bless her heart. <laughs> right? As long as you add it, you can say whatever you want, right? <laughs> He's such an idiot, bless his heart, you know. And if you really mean it, you can say ever loving heart, right? So in Oregon, we call it the Southern Curse. And, um, and my mom, bless her heart. She, <laughs> she tried to read the shack. I mean, her son wrote a book. None of her other kids had written a book. Her son wrote a book, right? So she gave it her best shot. And then Papa came through the door. And my mother closed the book, picked up the phone, and called my sister. <laughs> Debbie, your brother is a heretic. <laughs> it's my mom. And she got stuck right there, right? Because God the Father was a large black African-American woman. I want to tell you how she got unstuck because it's a remarkable story. And it really allows for a bigger picture within which to have this conversation in a remarkable way. So my mom went into... You up for this? Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. My mom went into nurse's training when she was 18 years old, 1946. Victoria Jubilee Hospital, Victoria, British Columbia. I'm Canadian-born. My three siblings were all born in Erie and Jaya, Netherlands, New Guinea, 
and West Papua, depending on who was in charge at the moment. And so we had four passports uh, in f- for four kids, four different nation passports. And um, but m- my I'm the firstborn, and my mom went into nurses training, single woman, 18 years old, and 1946. Now, some of you have some sense of 1946 or that era because if you know anything about it, you know that in the pantheon of the gods, there is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and doctors. <laughs> right? They'd have put it in different order than that. But, but there, it was kind of the holy profession. I mean, really, it really had that sense to it. And so if you were in nurses' training, you never countermanded a doctor. You didn't disagree with them. You didn't, you know, you just did what they told you to do. If they walked into a chart room, everybody stood up. If they stepped on the path, the, you know, everybody vacated it until they went by. I mean, it was the holy profession. Not so much anymore, except neurosurgeons are kind of like that. But <laughs> I got a good friend who's a neurosurgeon. I tease him all the time. So, but um, 1946... And my mother uh, and her sister Ruby went into nurses' training. And they had been there uh, three months when a woman came into the hospital, training hospital, and she was bleeding. And her name was Mrs. Munn. Uh, She was the wife of the senior pastor of the Anglican Church in Victoria. And she and her husband had been trying to have a baby. And her medical chart showed that she had had five late second trimester, early third trimester miscarriages in a row. Five of them. And if you've gone through that, as we have once, if you've gone through that, it's the loss of a child. And this is way after you can feel the baby kick. Right? So it's a big deal. And they had decided to try one more time. And she was six and a half months pregnant. She comes into the hospital bleeding. My mother's been working there for three months. She said she had just gotten her cap, which meant she looked cooler but still didn't know anything. Right? (laughs) And she comes... Mrs. Munn comes into the hospital bleeding. Well, they immediately call in the head of OB. He examines her and says, we're going to have to take the baby because her life's in danger. And um, so the doctor sets up an emergency C-section and grabs the head nurse to assist and a student nurse to assist and to learn and to do the cleanup. My mom. So three months into nurse's training, my mother is pulled into an emergency C-section in which the doctor delivered a one-pound baby boy, 16 ounces. That is the entire body is the size of a stick of butter, right? Houston, I told you about Houston, who's our button pusher. Houston was born four pounds and a half an ounce, emergency C-section, premature. And I have a picture of his entire fist like this, with lots of room to spare inside my son's wedding band. Okay? This baby is one pound. Now, in 1946, there's no NICU, there's no neonatal. At best, state-of-the-art is these little chicken incubator things that they had. And, uh, but there is nothing. I mean, one-pound babies don't, don't survive, and especially boys. Boys, they struggle harder to stay alive than girls do. Girls are just naturally stronger. And um, so, one-pound baby boy. So the doctor delivers the baby boy. He is delivered at 8.30 p.m., May the 30th, 1946. He puts the baby in a kidney tray, hands him to my mother, and says, it's not viable, dispose of it. Which meant incinerator. 
Now, we've learned since then that this is not unusual at the time because babies didn't survive. Well, the doctor goes back to finish the operation. My mother's holding this little uh, kidney tray with this little tiny baby boy in it, and he is still breathing. And she doesn't know what to do. So she walks out into the service area to try to figure out what am I supposed to do here. And she comes up with a plan. She finds a washcloth, puts the baby in the washcloth, puts him back in the kidney tray, walks back into the operating room and puts him on top of the sterilization unit because it's the only warm place in the room. Right? She cannot put a breathing baby in the incinerator. She couldn't do it. Right? So what's her plan? I'll wait till the baby dies because obviously the baby's going to die. So I'll just wait till the baby dies and then I will obey the doctor. So the doctor thinks it's all taken care of and he leaves. The head nurse takes Mrs. Munn to post-op for recovery, leaving my mother to do the cleanup. And that's what she does. So my mother cleans up the operating room and then she sits in the operating room holding this little tiny baby boy waiting for him to die. At 9.30, the doctor meets with the parents. I'm so sorry to tell you, but you had a son and he did not survive. He was not viable. And um, I'm sorry. So Reverend and Mrs. Munn, who are in their late 20s at this point, are now grieving the loss of their sixth child. And they're devastated. The doctor goes home. My mom's sitting in the operating room waiting for this baby to die. 10 30, 11.30, 12.30. At 1.30 in the morning, my mother says to herself, Well, I should probably tell somebody about this. Because <laughs> the baby's not dying, right? So she calls the head nurse who assisted in the operation, and the head nurse's response is, We are in so much trouble. But she has to call the doctor. The doctor comes rushing in from home and he's livid. He rips into my mom because my mother, due to her insubordination, has now put the doctor and the hospital in a situation. So he rips into this 18-year-old single girl who's studying to be a nurse and just tears her apart. And at the end of which he says, you created this problem, you're now responsible for it. And looks around and says to everybody, don't you dare, don't anybody dare say anything to the parents. Well, my mother takes this little tiny baby boy up to the nursery. They begin feeding him around around the clock with an eyedropper. And as often happens, over the next two days, he lost weight. He dropped to 12 ounces. What's the doctor thinking? Because nobody has said anything to the parents who are now, who've been grieving for two days. The doctor's thinking the baby's going to die. And as soon as the baby dies, nobody has to know, Right? Don't have to tell the parents, nothing. Two days into this, the baby starts to pick up weight. And the doctor knows he's got to tell the parents. So he goes to the parents and he says to them, I, I have to apologize because I spoke too soon. Um, we didn't want to give you any sense of false hope. But due to the miracles of modern medicine, we have managed... But we still don't think your son's going to survive. But you have a son. And even if he does, he's probably going to have brain damage. He's probably going to have MS or some complications. 
Do you think they are thrilled? They are over the moon. They have a son. And they name him Harold. Right? Good news. Right? Harold Munn. And the nurses, my mom and the nurses, watch Harold round the clock, hold him round the clock. Two weeks later, Mrs. Munn went home. Because, you know, in that day, it took a long time to get out of the hospital. Two months later, little tiny Harold went home to his parents. And two years later, my mother gets an invitation to his second birthday party in the mail. Now, a couple things that happened in between. One is, the parents, Reverend and Mrs. Munn, had gone to the hospital, and they had gone to the doctor, and they said, can you explain to us what really happened here? There is this two-day, almost three-day gap, right? And they're trying to figure out what happened. Nobody will tell them, right? My mother gets an invitation to a second birthday because she helped with the operation and helped take care of Harold. They had no idea what she had really done, right? But she gets an invitation, so she goes because she doesn't know how Harold's doing. And she's curious about that. So she goes and she says, I'm watching all the little kids playing around, you know, a bunch of two, three-year-olds, and there's Harold. She said he kind of was a little skinny, but he looked perfectly normal. He's running around like a two-year-old. She says nothing, my mom. Later that year, she graduated from nurse's training, three-year program. She moves to Canada, uh, central Canada, Saskatchewan, goes to Bible school, meets my dad. They get married. He takes a little church in Alberta, and I'm born in Grand Prairie, Alberta. When I'm 10 months old, the three of us, my mom and my dad and I, pack up everything we own, and we move to the highlands of New Guinea, Pioneer Mission Work in the highlands of New Guinea. We move into a tribe that had never seen a white person before. We move into a tribe that had never been, nobody even knew their language. And it was 40 to 60,000 tribal people over 100 square miles. Spirit worshiping, warring, ritualistically cannibalistic. They were cannibals. I thought everybody grew up with cannibals. (laughs) Right? They do, they're just different. (laughs) So... So, um, but that's where I grew up. It's my first dreaming language is Dani. When I'm five years old, I'm around the conversations that the tribal people were having and they were trying to decide whether to kill my parents or not. And I didn't feel in any danger. Um, when Wycliffe came in to translate the language, I was the informant because I could speak English and Dani. Right? Because children, they just learn languages. So it was my world. I didn't want to be around my dad anyway. And the and Donnie, people raised me. So, and, but the sexual abuse started inside my family in that sense, in the tribal culture. And, and there was a lot of it. And then I went to boarding school when I was six, and the big boys would come at night and molest the little boys. And so it became a part of the destruction of the fabric of my own soul. Mackenzie's weekend in the shack represents 11 years for me. Right? But I didn't want to write an 11-year book for my kids. 11 years of dismantling everything that I thought I knew about me and about God. And so that weekend is pictured in, 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 the, in the shack because of, of my history. So and that's a whole different story. So um, I, I want to build a persona around that. And my mom... She grows up. I mean, she is, 
has her children and everything in New Guinea. And, and uh, we came back to Canada right, before, right around when I was 10 years old. And my father became an itinerant pastor, which meant that he moved to different churches and stuff. And I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. I graduated in Terrace, British Columbia, which is up near Prince Rupert, which is up near Ketchikan, Alaska on the Panhandle. It's way up there, right? And I'm 17 years old at this time, and my mom's working in the hospital um, in Terrace. And she happens this one day to see an Anglican newsletter. Now, we're Protestant evangelical fundamentalists. You know, Anglicans are almost not Christians, you know. So <laughs> it was kind of like breaking the rules for her to even read an Anglican newsletter. But, but she saw an obituary in an Anglican newsletter for a Bishop Munn who had passed away. And she was curious. And she happened to be working that day with an Anglican nurse. And she said to this gal, did you happen to know Bishop Munn? And the gal said, yeah, very well. I worked with him with the First Nations people and um, was very, uh, knew him very well. My mom's still not sure. She says, did he ever have any children? This gal says, yes, one son. My mom says, do you know where this son is? This gal goes, you know, I've sort of lost track of him. Kind of a remarkable boy, graduated college like when he was 15. And, um, and she said, last I heard, he, he was a missionary teacher in West Africa. Wow. My mother still says nothing. Not for 10 more years. 10 years later, I'm living in Portland. I'm married to Kim, which saved my life, just so you know. And uh, we have two kids. And my mother reads another obituary. I'm getting to the age where I start reading them just to see that I'm not in them, you know. <laughs> and um, so my, uh, guess who died? Guess in the second obituary who died? The doctor. The doctor, right? She now reads that the doctor is dead. I'm 27 years old before I hear this story for the first time. My mother had kept this story to herself her whole life since she was an 18-year-old. She had nev never told another soul. And we find out about Harold Munn. I'm 27 years old, right? Well, my mother decides to track him down. The doctor's dead. He ain't coming back. <laughs> right? And she found him. He was now the senior pastor of the Anglican church just down the road from where his father pastored in 1946. And for six months, my mother stews about this. What's her issue? How do I tell Harold without him thinking I'm looking for credit? Old school all the way, right? And she is just kind of in a conundrum about this. Finally, it's Christmas and she writes Harold a letter about the coming of a son inside the Christmas story and sends it to him. Harold immediately contacts her. We need to talk. Because there was this mystery that he didn't know. His parents both had passed at this point. So Harold and my mom get together and my mom tells Harold the real story. And it blows him away. He says, we always knew there was this mystery about the way that I was born. And nobody could ever tell us what the, the answer to that mystery was. 
As you can imagine, my mom and Harold have become quite close. Harold's sort of adopted into our family now. He's a, he's a little older than I am. But, but one day my mother is talking to Harold, and, and my mom says, Hey, Harold, I have this son. And he wrote this book. And I'm having a problem with it. And Harold says, Well, Bernice, why don't you let me read it? I'll tell you what I think. Oh, would you, would you do that? So Harold Munn reads The Shack and he sends me an email. Dear Paul, I read your book. I love everything about your book, but I think I know what your mom is struggling with. It's the imagery that you use for God the Father. Let me see if I can do something about that. And Harold blind copies me on an email to my mother. Dear Bernice, I read Paul's book. You need to know that I love everything about this book. But I think you're probably struggling with the imagery he uses for God the Father. Let me tell you why that imagery is so important to me. And Harold lays it out. We know in Orthodox theology that God is neither male nor female. All of the maternal nature of God and the paternal nature of God, all that we experience, maleness and femaleness, is derived from the nature and the character of God. God's not like 51% male and 49% female, right? 100% of maleness. Did you know that the word mercy, which dominates the Hebrew scriptures, comes from the same root as the word womb, right? There's imagery all over the Bible, all over. Masculine imagery, yes, and I don't want to lose it because there's a paternal nature to God. God is father. There is a maternal nature to God. God's a nursing mother, Isaiah. God is a woman who loses a coin. God is a rock. That's an inanimate object. God's not a rock. You know that God's not a rock? You do know that God's not a rock. Right? Or a strong tower, or a shield, or a fortress. This is imagery. Right? God's a mother hen who covers the chicks. I tell people, I suppose I could have had Papa come through the door as a big hen. But I don't know if it would have done the same thing, you know. Imagery was never intended to define God. If imagery becomes a point where you're trying to define God, it becomes idolatry. Imagery is not, defend, it's not intended to define God. It's to help us understand elements of the character. And, and you, you know this, a picture is worth a thousand words. We understand a mother hen who covers the chicks. We understand an eagle that picks us up and carries us to places of safety. We know imagery. And the names of God are, are maternal and paternal. El Shaddai. Shad is the Hebrew word for breasts. And there is some conversation about this. But it was probably a Baptist. One of my people couldn't say the word breast without sinning. So, you know. So they came up with Lord of Hosts or something. Here's the miracle. Think about this. My mother saved a one-pound baby boy in 1946 who decades later, decades later, becomes the man was able to build a bridge for her to walk across for her own son.
God is not bound to time and space and things like that, but is constantly working good in the middle of what we bring to the table. Here's a paradigm shifting question for you. Who originated the cross? You see, because we don't ask that question and therefore we don't even think about this. God did not originate the cross. First John says, this is what we learned from Jesus. This is John. It's probably one of the last things he ever wrote. One of the last things ever written in the canon, right? He says, this is what we learned from him, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Talk to me about what a cross is. It is a torture device. It is a dark machine. The only purpose of a cross is to keep a human being alive as long as possible in as much pain as possible. There is no other purpose for a cross. It is a torture machine. God did not originate it. Fully anticipated it because Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. God knew going in, if we create these beings who are so incredibly magnificent that they have the ability to say no, this is the darkest torture machine they will ever create. That is where we're going to go. God did not originate the cross. But here's the beauty of what God does. He climbs into the messes that we bring to the table. He can climb onto a cross and out of it create an icon and a monument of grace that becomes so precious to us that we would wear it around our necks. That is the transforming power of a redeeming genius. Last little tiny story and we're done. My mom's sister, Ruby, that went to nurses training with her. I told you that Ruby and my mom went together. Ruby is a fiery redhead. Ruby is, in my mom's religious family, the free spirit. She's the one my mom's been trying to lead back to Jesus for 50 years, right? <laughs> she took me to my first movie when it was against the rules. She's my favorite aunt. <laughs> my mom's visiting Ruby one night on a weekend, and Ruby says to her, Bern that's my alarm saying I'm done, but I'm almost done. Ruby says, so Bernice, let's go to church tomorrow. You want to go to church? Sure. Okay. Where do you want to go? Ruby says, I don't know. Hey, let's go hear Harold. Neither my mom or Ruby had been in Harold's church. Now, this is moderately high Anglican. It's one of those places that if, you, if you're there, you immediately realize who knows what they're doing and who doesn't. <laughs> right? So my mom and Ruby slip into the back row, and it's like four times as long as this and a much narrower, Right? And uh, so they slip into the back row and this woman immediately realizes that they, these two don't know what they're doing. So she slides in next to my mom and she says, I'll help you, you know, when, you, when to stand and, you know, genuflector and all that kind of stuff. So, which is great. Harold is doing his homily, his sermon, 
And he's halfway through it when he spots my mom. And he stops. And he says, folks, I need to tell you a story. He said, there's a woman here. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be alive. In fact, every person I've ever touched in my life, she has touched through me. And then he proceeds to tell his people the story of his birth and introduces my mom. And then he goes back to finish his homily, his sermon, at the end of which everybody comes to the front and is served communion. And the the woman next to my mom mistakenly says, I am so sorry, honey, but in our faith tradition, you have to be a member here to participate in communion. I'm glad she wasn't sitting next to Ruby. So (laughs) my mom says, that's really no problem. I'm not offended whatsoever. I understand different faith cultures. And so everybody is served at the front at the end of which Harold takes off his outer garments, his robe. So he's wearing his white smock. And then he walks over and he picks up the bread and the cup and he comes down off the platform and he walks all the way back and he kneels in front of my mom and in front of Ruby. And suddenly it doesn't matter anymore if you're a seeker or agnostic or atheistic or Baptist or Christian Missionary Alliance or Anglican or Episcopal or Catholic. It doesn't matter because everything fades out to a broken body and shed blood. A God who is not afraid of our damage and what we bring to the table and out of respect for it, submits to it and begins to grow inside death something that is actually alive. This is the God who pursues us with a relentless affection that is so powerful we can't change it. A God who is good all the time. To the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.